0: Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Capital punishment in America is a tradition as old as the nation, a remedy by which those who have committed the most heinous of crimes are said to face ultimate justice. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law, the home of cutting-edge legal thought. In our conversation today, we have the privilege of a national leading expert in the field of the death penalty. John Donahue, lawyer, economist, and professor at Stanford Law School, formerly a professor at Yale Law School, where we're recording today. Professor Donahue, welcome to Talks on Law. Great to be here. Let's start with a basic question. Is there a problem with the death penalty today?
1: In my opinion, there's, there's quite a serious problem. Uh, all of criminal justice has many issues, but the death penalty uh, exacerbates them because of course the stakes are so high. And interestingly, the the death penalty has been reserved for the worst offenses. And ironically, the worst offenses are the ones that are most likely to lead to the most incorrect outcomes. It seems paradoxical, you would think that the death penalty would be uh, administered in the least problematic way because the stakes were so high. So the more serious the crime, the more likelihood that justice will get it wrong? Uh, The more brutal and heinous the crime, the more likely that the system will push for prosecution even when the evidence may not be all that compelling. And so it's much more likely that you'll get an incorrect conviction for a murder, for example, than for a burglary. Because if the evidence isn't there, the push to get a conviction on burglary is not so great, and the prosecutor says, "Well, we're, we're just not going to go ahead." But when you get a really horrible crime, the push for conviction is enormous. And There's pressure on the DA. There's pressure on the on the judge. Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, uh, you know, very recently uh, we have seen cases where um, innocent people have been released by. DNA exoneration. And when you look back at what has happened, you see that there was an enormous push to find someone uh, to, to convict. And, and this pattern has, has happened over and over again, uh, which generates a lot of concern about uh, wrongful conviction, uh, which is, of course, the, the great fear in, in implementing a death penalty regime that you'll execute the innocent. When you're dealing with
0: a death penalty, There's no going back.
1: Yes, and and the system is trying to address the problem of potential wrongful conviction by setting up very elaborate procedures and appeals. And one consequence of that, of course, is that now it takes a long time to get through the death penalty process because there'll be layer after layer of appeal.
0: Months or years.
1: Uh, Sometimes 25 or even 30 years. So, of course... The critics of these delays, which do make uh, a reasonable point, if you're going to have a death penalty system, uh, you'd like to have it administered more rapidly than 25 or 30 years after justice the crime. Justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah, and of course, if you're a death penalty lawyer, you say justice delayed is justice. But you know, September 2014, Henry Lee McCollum, who had been on death row for 30 years, was uh, released because of a DNA exoneration. And it was a horrific crime, really uh, about as bad a crime as you can find. And indeed, Justice Scalia, who has been one of the greatest champions of the death penalty and sort of trying to do everything he could to implement it more efficiently, uh, held up the McCollum case as the prototype case that is deserving of the death penalty. And he did that in response to his colleague, uh, Justice Blackman's plea uh, way back in 1994, uh, to say after 20 years of Justice Blackman's effort to create procedures that would lead to justice in the death penalty arena, uh, he had become convinced it could not be done. And he announced in 1994 that from that day forward, he would no longer tinker with the machinery of death and said that, in his view, and and from that day forward, he would find any case of capital punishment should be deemed unconstitutional. Scalia responded to this by reciting the facts of the McCollum murder, uh, the so-called McCollum murder. It turned out he was innocent. Um, what were the basic facts? And and it was a horrible case. The, the facts as recited by Justice Scalia were that uh, four men had brutally raped an 11-year-old girl and then stuffed her panties down her throat, leading her to choke to death. And he, he went on to say, you know, this, this shows why we must have the death penalty. And ironically, uh, in many ways, the, the statement that Scalia made uh, sort of showed the great weakness of the death penalty because that case was so horrible that there was enormous pressure to convict. The more heinous the crime is, the more that pressure will be there. And they managed to find two uh, borderline retorted individuals who, under enormous pressure from the police, uh, ended up signing a confession, which they immediately renounced after they signed the confession. One of the guys who signed the confession, McCollum, uh, said as soon as he signed it, well, can I go home now? So he really didn't understand what he was doing. He was 18 years old at the time. But um, luckily for him, his lawyers used these extensive procedural delays to uh, try to overturn his conviction. And after 30 years, uh, DNA evidence was found in the case and it implicated a person who lived a block away at the time that the murder had occurred and who a month after the 11-year-old girl was raped and and murdered, uh, committed another rape and murder and was sentenced for that. So almost unbelievably, the police will sometimes focus on the wrong person, get a conviction, and then almost to their dying breath, fight to get that person convicted even when overwhelming evidence Arises to show that the individual was innocent. Even in this McCollum case, the prosecutor, who was known as the most um, avid advocate for the death penalty, uh, announced when uh, the man was exonerated that he still thought he was guilty. And and this has happened is it over a blindness
0: and over Yes, or is it? A, what what would explain
1: that? You know, it's happened so many times now where. Uh, a clear exoneration has come to pass, and the original prosecutors refuse to acknowledge it. That I do think it's there's something about the psychology of the act that if you pushed to get someone sentenced to death, um, it's very painful psychologically to admit that you made a mistake in a case like that. And so many times, the the prosecutors of the police will just refuse to make that. Uh, that statement. Another horrible case that occurred when I was a professor years ago in uh, Northwestern Law School and one of my uh, brilliant colleagues, a guy named Larry Marshall, was defending someone who had been charged uh, with another horrible rape and murder of a, of a young girl. I think she was 13. Um, and he, Larry Marshall, was uh, arguing that his client was innocent and The father of the raped girl was denouncing Larry Marshall as an evil person for helping this criminal who had done this horrible thing to his daughter. Uh, And it took many years to exonerate him, uh, but it turned out that the police thought they had the right guy and then framed him, which is one of the problems that happens in this arena when there's such a push for justice after a horrible crime occurs uh, the police, a lot of incentive for shortcuts. Uh, enormous incentives. And most of the time when the police are framing someone, they're actually trying to frame the, the guilty person because they feel what this person has done is so horrible, they should get the ultimate uh, punishment. But of course, when they do that, then of course, it, it, it elevates the risk of the wrongful conviction. And, and the, that case was very similar to the McCollum case. Uh, and for years, uh, the prosecutors refused to to acknowledge the error, but that case and a number like it ultimately led Illinois to uh, first put a moratorium on the death penalty and then ultimately uh, abolish the death penalty.
0: So let's take a look at the the current status of the death penalty. Yep. Federally, the death penalty is is in place, yes. and in most states, the death penalty is in place. A number of states have banned the death penalty.
1: Yeah, you know it's. The, the history of the death penalty, as you acknowledged in your opening statement, is an, a very interesting one. Um, there, there have been some states that have not had the death penalty for over hundred years, uh, and then there are, there are many for whom it's a, a very active process in, in their current Texas. criminal justice. Yeah, Texas being the most uh, notable.
0: Well, there are some that would say the death penalty is inherently wrong, that the state shouldn't take life as punishment for someone who has taken life. But there's another argument, and that's one that you've actually spent a lot of time working on, on demonstrating, which is that the death penalty, as it's implemented, has inherent biases.
1: Yeah, again, uh, the, the, the bias issue is, a, is an interesting one in, in the death penalty arena, and, and I think there are so many interesting issues in, in this particular domain. But uh, speaking about um, uh, that one in particular, the, the one that led to so much pressure to eliminate the death penalty in the 1960s, for example, was the concern about racial discrimination. And of course, the history of race discrimination, particularly in the American South, was a a very serious one. And indeed, Southern juries uh, did not have any African Americans serving on those juries until the mid-1960s. It was really after the Voting Rights Act that- This was a Jim Crow uh, remnant? Yeah, es- essentially uh, blacks were almost completely disenfranchised from voting in the South, and typically jurors are selected from the voting rolls. So until the uh, uh, 1965 Voting Act went into effect, you essentially did not have uh, African-American jurors serving in these cases. And so there was was enormous problems in both directions where sometimes uh, white individuals who had killed African-Americans were exonerated by all white juries. So that's what we call type two error. Um, And then the the problem of the other side is when you you either wrongfully convict uh, an African-American or just have harsher justice. And so this is something that I've worked on in a number of settings looking at, is it the case that individuals of different race or ethnic uh, background are, are treated more harshly by the system? So these are two different types of problems. One is the potential wrongful conviction that could be racially motivated, and the other is within the class of people who are eligible for the death penalty by virtue of the crime that they have committed, are we seeing harsher punishments fall on one racial group or other category than in another and I think in the United States it's it's pretty clear as you look around the country that one configuration of crimes generally gets the harshest treatment and and it would be minorities killing whites or, or maybe more specifically African Americans killing whites uh, make it much more likely that you will get the death penalty
0: Is it gender specific? Would it be uh, more likely if it was a white woman versus a white man?
1: Well, gender plays a role in two different ways in the death penalty in the United States. Uh, Much more difficult for women to get the death penalty. uh, Whether there's a rational basis for that, we can discuss. But uh, in general, uh, much more likely that a man uh, committing a crime will, will get the death penalty than a woman committing the same crime. And then the second question is, uh, are you more likely to get the death penalty if you kill a woman as opposed to killing a man? And I think the answer there is is yes, indeed you are. Let's talk a little bit further about the results of your study. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, When you say that it's more likely that a black man who kills a white man will get the death penalty than in the inverse, Mm -hmm. how much more likely?
1: Well, it probably varies state by state. I, I did a rather large examination of the death penalty process in the state of Connecticut. This was over a
0: period of years.
1: Yeah, I, I literally spent eight years of my life studying this, uh, this question. It turns out to be a, a difficult thing to capture all of the information about every potentially death-eligible case. But at the end of uh, this eight-year process of study, uh, it was pretty clear to me that two things happened. That first, prosecutors are much more likely to charge someone with a capital felony, which is what you need to be charged with if you're going to face the possibility of a death sentence in Connecticut, that if it's a minority killing a white than any other racial configuration of defendant and victim. And, and to give you a sense of the differences there, If you look at all of the death eligible cases in Connecticut, about 85% of those will be charged with a capital felony if it's a minority killing a white, while about 60% of the capital eligible cases will be charged with a capital felony if it's one of the other racial configurations.
0: So it's pretty similar if it's a crime between two black individuals or a crime between two white individuals? Uh,
1: Interestingly, a a little bit higher for two white individuals. And there's probably a reason for that. Um, In general, whites are more enthusiastic about the death penalty in the United States than African-Americans. And so by virtue of uh, of a jury system that is essential now to um, get a death sentence, usually have to get a, a jury to decide that a death penalty is, a, is appropriate. If you are an African-American, you're more likely to be living in a higher density African-American arena, and so more African-Americans are likely to be on your jury, and uh, African-Americans in general are just less enthusiastic about the death penalty than whites. So the, the, the class of cases that is most harshly treated is blacks killing whites, uh, then whites killing whites and lowest is blacks killing blacks or minorities killing minorities. So I, I mentioned the charging decision. Uh, in Connecticut uh, you have to go beyond just being charged with a capital felony to have the prosecutor push for the death sentence. And it turns out to be a relatively unlikely event in most of uh, Connecticut that you will get a death sentence. but. A minority killing a white in Waterbury, Connecticut has almost like a 92% chance of being sentenced to death, while the same crime for any other racial configuration would have, outside of Waterbury, would have about half of 1% chance of getting sentenced to death. So
0: So is this the power of one uh, prosecutor?
1: Yeah, and in, in, in this particular case it, it was a, uh, a particular prosecutor by the name of John Connolly who was very pro-death penalty and was pushing for it very heavily. Uh, we'll have to see whether the Waterbury effect maintains itself. Uh, it'll take a while for enough cases to build up, but in 2011 uh, Connolly was removed from office on corruption charges. But when you have a really horrible murder case, uh, it 's easier to get a conviction, uh, even if the evidence isn 't that compelling because just because the
0: facts are so awful.
1: The facts are so awful, and, and the emotion overwhelms the, uh, the the evidence you know again if if you have a much less volatile crime, people can look at it and weigh the evidence If, if you have an overwhelmingly horrible crime, which was the the case I was referring to, in which John Massimino had been the prosecutor. Uh, the passions get so aroused when you, you hear about these horrible cases, and the, the people keep hearing the prosecutors saying, and this is the person who did it, and it just uh, elevates your anger at that person, even if it turns out, uh, as it was in that case, that he was innocent.
0: You discussed the prosecutor's uh, ability or the prosecutor's choice mm-hmm. um, and the bias there. Is there also bias in the jury's decision, in the judge's decision?
1: You know there's a potential for bias in in every step. uh, Years of looking at the data convinced me that um, a very big part of the problem is at the prosecutorial stage Um, and again 95% of prosecutors I think are really quite good and and do a good job but those 5% who who are not as good and not as honest uh, cause a, a lot of damage. And, um, you know, in general it's it's sort of a, a rule, whether you're talking about teachers or corporate executives, uh, 95% tend to be good, 5% tend to be somewhat problematic. And that again is, is one of the concerns about the death penalty because uh, unless the lawyers have managed to keep the case going for many years as in the uh, McCollum case that we discussed earlier, if you make a mistake in the death penalty arena it's irrevocable. And so uh, in, in Texas a few years ago, probably one of the worst things you can imagine, a guy was charged with killing his own children uh, in a fire in his home on Christmas Eve. Turns out he was innocent, the fire was uh, uh, you know, likely just a mechanical fire that occurs in uh, bad wiring um, and with Christmas trees around, it's more likely that those can turn into uh, blazes. Uh, yet he, he was executed and the exoneration Happy essentially the came fact. later. But uh, and, and so these are, these are troubling cases. Uh, it's, uh, it's really hard for me to imagine what it must be like to be an innocent father who's just lost his children and then to be put to death for that when you were not the the culprit in the case
0: All right so for those who are listening for MCLE credit the code for this course is 578439 feel free to stop, pause or rewind, but the code is 578439. And now back to the
1: interview.
0: So these are these seem to me as strong arguments, strong policy arguments mm-hmm. against the death penalty. Yeah. What is the constitutional standard? Is there a level of bias or arbitrariness that would raise to a constitutional defense?
1: Yeah, standard, the, the constitutional standard. So, so in 1971, MacArthur versus California was the first attempt uh, to force the Supreme Court to address the issue. Is there too much arbitrariness in the death penalty? Uh, this was a due process charge, and the court in 1971 said, no, the, the, the capacity to eliminate the arbitrariness you know, beyond human capacity is is the language that Justice Harlan used at that time. And so the court said we're not going to strike down the death penalty on that basis. A year later, uh, some of the same lawyers came back to the Supreme Court in the Furman versus Georgia case 1972, and they said, well, we're going to raise some of these same arguments, but now under the Eighth Amendment, which is the amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And A year after rejecting this arbitrariness argument, the Supreme Court now embraced it and they said, yes, the death penalty is different and therefore we can look to the Eighth Amendment to say we must have elevated standards and less arbitrariness in the implementation of the death penalty than we might have elsewhere in the criminal justice system. And so they struck down every existing death penalty statute and ironically, the, the death penalty had almost died at that point. No one had been executed in a, in a number of years in the United States. But when the Supreme Court struck it down, it threw it into the legislative domain. And that was really the start of capital punishment becoming a very contentious political issue. And so 34 states uh, implemented the death penalty in relatively short order. Some states that didn't even have it at the time uh, got caught up in the enthusiasm for the death penalty. So, by banning the death penalty,
0: it was a, an injection of lifeblood into the death
1: penalty. Yeah, it, it was one of the great ironies, uh, where the the lawyers and indeed some of the Supreme Court justices said. Well, we took a a sort of measured approach. We didn't want to be too intrusive, and we thought Furman would be the end of the death penalty, yet it turned out to, um, as you suggest, uh, uh, stimulate much more interest in the death penalty and, and also the expense of the death penalty. One of the things that the Supreme Court has done by requiring all of these super procedures is they made the process vastly more expensive and so some states and, and prosecutors are, are just thinking it's, it's not worth the enormous expense.
0: And so is that the, the politically, more politically feasible uh, argument against the death
1: penalty? California, for example, has spent $4 billion running their death penalty system since the Furman decision in 1972. And they've only executed 13 people over that huge period of time. They have like 750 people on death row, so there's a, a huge backlog. I'm a lawyer, so I'm probably not great at math, but uh, you take that number and divide it by
0: the number of executions, and you're spending millions.
1: It's, it's enormously high. In fact, uh, my co-author, Steve Levitt, who wrote Freakonomics, uh, once noted that a gangland criminal, uh, you know, a member of a gang in Chicago, is much more likely to die on the street than if he were sentenced to death because the, the rate of death for a person on death row is lower than the rate of death for a criminal on the streets of Chicago. Yeah, if, if you have to choose you know, what's more likely to lead to my demise, you'd, you'd be better off getting sentenced to death if you're a Chicago gang leader. Of course, now Illinois has gotten rid of the death penalty, but in, in California, the third leading cause of death on death row is execution, it's uh, more likely. So the, I assume the first is illness? Yeah, so sort of old age, uh, and, and the second is suicide. Uh, of course, the people who are enthusiastic about the death penalty over the years have have argued that it serves other functions like deterrence or, or retribution. Criminals are less
0: likely to commit a crime if they know that they could be executed for it.
1: Yeah, and, and this argument has been made very strongly, uh, and, and I did spend a number of years of my life trying to go through the, the studies on deterrence. I, I think almost every top econometrician who has looked at the data... has Econometrician, that's a, a
0: magician who does economics?
1: Uh, well, that's, a, that's a, a positive spin on it, but <laughs> in, in, in essence... Uh, econometrics is is using statistical analysis to um, to answer some of these uh, issues about causation, for example, does the death penalty reduce uh, the, the rate of murder and uh, a number of econometric studies were done that made the claim that there was such a reduction in murder when states implemented capital punishment but um, I think almost all top econometricians have now um, come to the conclusion that there really is no statistical support for the idea that the death penalty uh, deters murder. And it's, it's quite striking as you look around the, the country and around the world how little the effect of the death penalty has on, on, on actual rates of murder. Well, one study that I thought was quite nicely done was uh, looking at Singapore and and Hong Kong, where Singapore suddenly got the idea that the death penalty was a great idea and ratcheted up its use at a level much more common than even Texas in the United States, just about the same time that Hong Kong decided we should eliminate the death penalty. And these are two very uh, homogeneous and similar uh, populations, about the same level of affluence and, and wealth and for... Both successful economies. Both successful and for years had had very similar rates of homicide and then suddenly you get this very sharp difference in the punishments and almost no change in the homicide rates. They continued to trend Hmm. along in the same direction. Yeah and indeed the United States has crafted a death penalty system that is almost certainly the least likely to be a deterrent. So for example these horrific crimes of uh, you know horrible torture, bludgeoning and brutalizing uh, are by people who are so far beyond the normal calculus of you know how should I conduct my my uh, behavior um, that it's unlikely that they're thinking about getting caught. Uh, and also the enormous delays that we have um, go against the standard proposition that, was actually articulated in Italy hundreds of years ago by Cesare Beccaria, who had suggested that swift and certain punishment is the most important. Beccaria was one of the great early advocates for eliminating the death penalty because he he argued that it would not serve a deterrent function. Much better to have swift and certain punishment rather than uh, try to rely on infrequently administered harsh punishment.
0: You mentioned another justification or another argument in favor of the death penalty Mm -hmm. and that's retribution. This is someone that did something wrong and now they should be punished. They should be punished in the worst possible way.
1: The notion of retribution is a very powerful one and certainly if you look at the crimes, um, they're heartbreaking and and they do um, elevate your indignation. How could someone do something so horrible and they, they certainly call out for very harsh punishment. Uh, and if you look around the country, you know, most people uh, in response to surveys will say, um, you know, if you kill someone, you really should be sentenced to death. You deserve it. Yeah, you deserve it. Um, the, the, the problem is that you know, there are 16,000 murders in the country every year. Uh, the most number of executions we've had any time in the last 50 years was 98. So there has to be this enormous winnowing down process. And when you winnow down 16,000 or 25,000, which was the number of murders we had in the early 90s, uh, down to a number you know less than 100, uh, the system is gonna be arbitrary unless you are really careful in finding the worst of the worst offenders. And the Supreme Court has tried to push the system to get the worst of the worst offenders. Um, but as you look across uh, uh, the landscape, um, the factors of race and geography and the particular bent of the prosecutor and uh, other irrelevant things to the real merits of the case uh, overwhelm this this other factor. And so I, I think that the, the concerns that people have uh, about what an ideal system would look like, in which case you might think that retribution would would only be satisfied by the death penalty, are undermined by the way that the death penalty works in in practice.
0: Fascinating. Well, Professor Donahue, it's been a real treat having you here to discuss this issue.
1: It's uh, been my pleasure.
0: For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.